Does this work? Oh, yeah, I'm live. All right. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here again. Um, I've talked one other time here at First Church on how to live by faith, and now um, I get to talk about something else that um, I've been working on and studying and get to share with you. Um, there's no fancy intro here. The sermon is on sins of the mind. Um, sins of the mind are opposed to sins of the flesh, like lust and gluttony, which is an inordinate or excessive desire for sex and food or drink, uh, respectively. Um, I'm going to talk about sins of the mind specifically, and I'll get more into what those are uh, later on in the sermon. Um, and what, the reason this is important is that we as Christians are constantly in a process of sanctification, of self-improvement, of refining ourselves, of remo removing any kind of impurities. And you can think about what we do as a kind of surgery. Um, if there's something that um, causes you to display signs or symptoms of a lack of health or an illness, you might go to a physician who then um, tr uses some sort of theory about what might cause those signs or symptoms in order to discover what the illness is, and then get to the root cause. And then once they, have the, once they have identified that root cause, they'll develop a treatment plan. And hopefully, the, the thing that's causing the illness can be removed, and hopefully you don't have to remove more than that. So that's what we're doing today. Um, I'm going to talk about what a sin of the mind is, so we can get clear on exactly what that is, so that we can remove those sorts of sins from our life, but not too much. Before I get into it, I'll, I'll give you the kind of the table of contents or the order of the sermon, um, but let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, um, I first pray for those who are listening. Please help um, people who hear this message online and in person to have a clear mind, to remain focused. Um, please help them to be able to understand uh, what's been said um, in order to apply it to their lives. Please help those who hear this not to be thinking about how they can correct others, but how they can improve themselves. And please help me to deliver this message with clarity, uh, with insight, and please, if I say anything incorrect, please correct it in the mind of the audience. Amen. All right. Um, so here's the order of what we're going to do. Uh, first, we'll talk about what a sin of the mind is. We'll try to get clear on that. Um, that will be a way of diagnosing the illness. We'll give some examples. Um, if you're a beginning physician uh, or a surgeon, uh, it would be helpful if you're trying to identify what a tumor is or an abnormal mass or uh, an infection of the lungs to have several examples of what those look like. And so we'll do that in order that um, it can help us to understand what sins of the mind look like in real life. Then we'll talk about what it looks like not to sin that way. Um, this is like looking at healthy bodies. Um, you can think of a surgeon as in what a surgeon does in two different ways. You can think about them removing the illness, or you can think about them as knowing what a healthy body is look, looks like and then removing everything that's not that. And so we're going to see what a person who doesn't display sins of the mind look like so that we know what a healthy body looks like. And then last, we'll develop a treatment plan. We'll talk about what it looks like to overcome these sins of the mind. Okay, so there's our process. Ready to get started? I know I just kind of jumped into this. No personal stories, no jokes or anything, um, but there's a lot to say here, so I really want to get to it. All right, so what is a sin of the mind? Um, when we think about this, uh, we can start by thinking about what sin is in general. 
And it's really easy when we think about uh, sin to think about, uh, suppose I asked you, like, what, what does it mean to sin? At, at first pass, you might think it's something like, well, it's acting against the rules and like the big 10 rules, the, the 10 commandments. It, you know, if you murder, if you lie, bear false witness, if you steal, uh, commit adultery, those things are the big ones. And that's the, the, the kind of the easy surface level thought about sin. But there's reason to think that sin is a lot more than that. Uh, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, gives these statements, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And it goes something like this, you've heard it said, you shall not murder, but you shouldn't even curse people. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but don't even think about it. And so the idea isn't just that we shouldn't act against the rules. The idea, you might think, is that not only should we not act against the rules, but we shouldn't even think about acting against the rules. So the thoughts about disobeying the rules themselves are sins. You shouldn't even think about cursing someone else. You shouldn't even think about committing adultery. And so that's a sin of the mind, just thinking about disobeying the rules. But there's reason to think that the sin is even more pervasive than that. Even if you never thought about disobeying the rules, you still might be committing sins of the mind. And a reason to think that is what Jesus says after Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, you, but, it, but you've heard it said, but I say to you. He says in chapter 6, one chapter later, here's what he says. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Okay, so you, know, you need to store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay, so what is this treasure? What is this storing up? What is this, this sort of thing? Then he answers, you cannot serve both God and money. In other words, this treasure, the thing that you should be storing up for yourselves, is service to God. You should be serving God. That's where your heart should be. And what Jesus is saying here is that it's not enough just to not think about disobeying the rules. You have to actively do something. You have to actively serve. You have to serve God. Um, he says later in Matthew 6, um, in the passage that Jose um, preached on last week, uh, Jesus says, don't worry about your life, your clothes, or your future, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So now Jesus is saying, there's something that you have to do. You have to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. It's not, a just, not, it's not enough just to not think certain ways. You have to actively think in a certain way. You have to actively seek his kingdom and his righteousness. And then in Matthew 16, um, he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. It's pretty harsh, right? So he's calling Peter, his most zealous disciple, Satan, and you might wonder why he did that. Well, he answers it in the next sentence. He says, you are a stumbling block to me. And then you might wonder, well, why, you know, why is Peter a stumbling block to Jesus? And Jesus answers it in the next sentence. He says, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So it turns out that not having in mind the concerns of God is a stumbling block to Jesus. So it turns out that you actively need to have in mind the concerns of God. 
You need to focus on the concerns of God. That's a really strict requirement. It's, it's a focus sort of thing. So now how do we characterize what sin is if it requires that not sinning has us do something active? Serving, seeking, and focusing. Well, um, I'm going to try to make sense of this. And one way is to think pretty literally. Uh, Sin, the Greek word for that is harmartia, which means missing the mark. And this is using an archery analogy. So basically the mark is like a target on the other side. And the archer shoots, I'm doing this wrong, an archer shoots an arrow at the target and it's hitting the target. And to miss the target is to sin. That's missing the mark. And you might wonder, well, what is the mark? And it turns out that the mark is the concerns or purposes of God. Um, In Scripture, uh, a person who consistently hits the mark is called teleon, which means mature, complete, or an expert. And an archer who's a teleon, so think about an archer, when they're first learning, they might ha- be given rules. They might be told, you have to you know, pull back the bow this certain way. You need to be thinking about this sort of thing. But the goal isn't just to obey the instructor's rules or to think how the instructor tells you to think. The goal is to hit the target. And as a person becomes more mature or complete, they don't need to think about those rules anymore. They just naturally hit the target. So think about the, the three people here and that I I pictured, they're not thinking about their instructor's rules. They're just, they're naturally hitting the target. And they do, in fact, obey the rules, but they don't have to have those very rules in mind. We can take this teleon idea and extend it to um, uh, use a philosopher named Aristotle to help us out here. So Aristotle had this teleological model. Both terms are based on telos, which means an end or goal or a target some sort of aim that you have, some sort of purpose. And according to Aristotle's teleological model, every deliberate action that we perform is aimed after some sort of end. Every deliberate action has some sort of goal, and those goals are sub-goals of other goals, which lead to some sort of ultimate goal. Uh, When I teach Aristotle to my classes, I'm a teacher at CNU, especially in my business ethics classes, I'll ask them, Okay, here's something you deliberately did. You came to class. Why did you come to class? So ask him this question. And and a lot of my students in business ethics say to get a good grade. And then I say, okay, well, what's the point of getting a good grade? What's the purpose for that? What is your aim in getting a good grade? They'll answer to graduate. What's the purpose in graduating? I want to get a good job. All right, what's that aimed at? What's that for? To make money. All right, so what? What's the purpose? I want to support a family. Okay, why? Why do you want to do that? Because I want to be successful. Why do you want to be successful? I don't know, that's just the thing, right? That's the ultimate goal that they've got. And this diverges by student. You know, sometimes a student will say they want to make money because they want to buy what they want um, and they want to do that. Uh, so that they can be comf- live a comfortable life. Some students say that they want to make money so they can please their parents in order to be accepted. These are, these are three of the most common answers that students give in my classes. But you see that there's a top-level thing, and the idea is that 
we, you don't have to have this in mind every time you perform a deliberate action. You perform deliberate actions for goals even if you're not aware of those goals. You have a purpose in mind and it's informing your action. It just helps to think about that and so you can adjust. Does, because maybe the goals that you think you ought to have aren't the goals that you're acting for. So what should the goal be? Well, Paul says it in 1 Corinthians. He says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, anything that you deliberately do, do it all for the glory of God. That's the top level goal. That's the target. And so in order not to miss the mark, whatever we do, it needs to be aimed at doing it for the glory of God. A sin of the mind, then, is a misalignment of our purposes with God's. It's when we do something that isn't ultimately aimed for the glory of God. All right, so we've, that's what a sin of the mind is. Now, we can answer the question, what are some examples of sins of the mind? And the easiest examples of sins of the mind are ones that aren't aimed at the glory of God, but aimed at the glory of ourselves. And I've got a slide here that has a lot of these examples. Feel free to take a picture if you want, but I'll return to it a couple times. All right, so let's go over them. Um, conceit. A person who's conceited has an unwarrantedly high opinion of, of themselves. They think much better of themselves than they ought. A person who's self-righteous. This person insists that their uprightness is their own doing. Maybe they don't have too high of an opinion of themselves, but whatever uprightness that they have, it's because of themselves. That person's self-righteous. What about arrogance? Well, arrogance is to infer illicit entitlement. I deserve something because of who I am or the kind of person I've made myself into. A person who's vain isn't thinking so much about how superior they are, but thinking about whether they appear superior to others. They're concerned about their appearance to others, whether it's in looks, whether it's in status, whether it's in abilities, whatever. A person who is a snob, snobbery, um, sometimes contemptuous is, is another name for this, is to um, have a illegitimate contempt toward others, to exclude them because they are not in the kind of superior class that one is in. That is to be snobbish. And to hold someone in contempt is actually worse than hating them, in a way. If you hate someone, it's because you think they're worthy enough to oppose. And so you're trying to will evil on them. But if you hold them in contempt, they're not even worth that. They are so low that they're excluded from being in the kind of class that you're in. Now, those are all, those, those, those are in a group because they're attitudes that a person has about themselves. The next three are attitudes that a person has toward interactions with others. And one of these is domination. And this is seeing other interactions as opportunities to win. If you're talking with another person, you're debating with them, discussing, um, you can see that as an opportunity to come to the truth, to learn. You can see it as an opportunity to understand the world a little bit better. Or you can just see it as, as, in terms of sides. If someone disagrees with you, if you think, oh, they're on the other side and my goal is to win, that's a domination kind of mindset. It's not thinking about the other person as being on your team where the goal is to reach the truth. Invidious pride is to have this domination mindset, but to see oneself as winning. To think that you're winning in a conversation is to display invidious pride, and that's to focus on yourself 
overcoming another. And envy is invidious pride, or is the opposite. It's the, it's the flip side of invidious pride. It's from the loser's end. So a person who has envy sees another person as winning over them, being more successful or having something great that they don't have, and feeling sad about that, as if they're the loser in the interaction. So here are, these are eight uh, sins of the mind from the virtue ethics literature, and it helps to, to, to sometimes to have names to these and so we can identify them. Um, in order to be able to apply this, let's uh, use a case study, the uh, prideful Pharisee. All right, so here's, here's the Jesus' example of the prideful Pharisee. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. So what sin of the mind is this tax collector, or sorry, this uh, Pharisee displaying? Well, this is a contemptuous attitude or a snobby attitude. He's holding other people, the robbers, the adulterers, the evildoers in contempt, thinking that they're less, they're, they're, they're inferior to what, to what he is. And we can think, suppose the Pharisee were to pray something different. Instead of saying, I, I'm thankful that I have such a high status, what if the Pharisee were to say something like, God, I pray for all of the others, the robbers, the evildoers, that they become more like me. Would that change things? Well, he's no longer excluding them as a class, right? He's wanting them to be like he is. So it might not be conceit here. I'm sorry, it might not be snobbery. It's more like conceit in this scenario. It's more like the Pharisee is saying, thinks thinks way highly of himself. Or it might be some sort of self-righteousness where the Pharisee thinks, I got to where I am because of how I am and they haven't done enough. And so you can, we can take cases like this and, and run through the different examples and try to figure out where the sin of the mind is. And according to the, the literature, the root of this is pride. So the root of all of these sins of the mind is pride. It's the deadliest sin, the primal sin, not only in the sense that it was the first, but in the sense that it's the, it's the underlying cause, it's the root of all of these sins. Now, you might not think pride of all kinds is, is so bad. After all, there is a kind of pride that someone has in their protege succeeding. Here's Archie Manning having pride in Peyton and Eli Manning. Um, or Usher having pride in the Beebs. So suppose, uh, you know, I have pride in my son. Um, we might think about what that means as a guide for figuring out what pride is. If I have pride in my son, I'm identifying something in what my son is doing that's really praiseworthy, really awesome, really great. If, if I thought my son wasn't doing anything great, there'd be no reason for the pride. So in order to have pride in someone, I need to identify something great or praiseworthy in that person. And that's the worthiness condition. So in order to have pride, you have to recognize something worthy in a person. But that's not enough for pride. Um, I can recognize, to, to take Michael Phelps, for example, the most decorated U.S. Olympian, I can think that he's an amazing swimmer. 
And that's something worthwhile, something worthy in what he's doing. He has an excellent skill. But I don't have pride in Michael Phelps. I might admire his ability to swim so well, but I don't have pride. And the difference is that Michael Phelps doesn't have a close enough connection to me. Michael Phelps is not, in a sense, mine. There's nothing, there's, there's, there isn't that connection. Whereas my son is, in a sense, mine. My, sin is my, my son is closely connected to me. And if I were to have pride in a protege, then that person would be closely enough connected to me. So pride involves a worthiness condition where you recognize something worthwhile and a possession condition. That thing that's worthwhile is somehow connected to me. And this can happen with pride in yourself. So if a person has pride in themselves, the possession condition is met because I'm connected to myself in a pretty important way. And the worthiness condition is met because I recognize something worthy in myself. So I have pride in myself. Now, is all pride problematic? Is all pride the root of these? We don't have an answer to that yet, but we'll get there. So far, we know what a sin of the mind is. It's a misalignment of our purposes with God's. We've had some examples of sins of the mind. We've gotten to the root, which is pride, but we don't know whether all that kind of pride is bad. In order to figure out what we need to root out, what the ultimate cause is, we can now look to healthy examples. We can now look to what it looks like not to sin in a prideful kind of way. And then the kind of um, the behavior that those that a healthy person wouldn't display is the kind of pride that we need to root out. Okay, so we can ask, ask examples. Uh, to not sin in a prideful way is to be humble or to display humility. Humility and humbleness are the opposite of pride. And you might think that to be humble or to display humility, you need to have low self-esteem, self-respect, or self-confidence. You might think that you need to underestimate yourself. That you might think it's, it's displayed by the kind of person who, like, if they were a dog, they'd have their tail between their legs. You know, always deferring to someone else, not thinking very well of themselves. You might think that this person is always polite and gentle. Um, but these are misconceptions of what it means to be humble. Uh, we at least have a great model in humility in Jesus. Uh, Paul says of Jesus that he was humble. Um, he says, and Paul says in Philippians 2, in humility we need to value others above ourselves, not only looking to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Our mindset should be that of Christ Jesus. So he's saying Jesus is an example of the kind of humble mindset we ought to have. And we can look at what Jesus has done. Well, one thing that Jesus did was tell others how they should live their lives. Like, Jesus was pretty adamant. He said, you guys should behave differently. You shouldn't be doing this. You should live your life this way. And it was amidst political opposition. People really didn't want Jesus doing that. And they were willing to try to arrest him and kill him because of it. That's not a person who lacks self-confidence or self-respect or self-esteem. He didn't just defer to the authority. He didn't just cower and he never retracted his claims. Jesus claimed to be God publicly, so much so that people recognized it and wanted to stone him, called him a blasphemer. And uh, that's not a person who underestimates themselves. 
pretty sure that if someone calls themselves God, they're not underestimating themselves, right? So in order to be humble, you don't need to underestimate yourself. What about being polite and gentle? Well, Jesus was often rude and abrasive. As you heard earlier, he called his most ardent disciple Satan, which is a pretty harsh name. The political leaders, he called them whitewashed tombs. He called them basically posers and phonies, which is what whitewashed tomb means. Posers and phonies. He called them tools. He called them swine, which was unclean. He was pretty abrasive. He spent time making a whip in order to whip at people and kick over their tables and ruin their businesses. This is not a person who's always polite and gentle. He was polite and gentle sometimes, but if you think that a person in their time of being rude and abrasive is therefore not humble, then that's incorrect because Jesus was humble his whole life, but was sometimes rude and abrasive. And so we should, we should be careful when we kind of do this on sur- the surgery not to cut out too much. We shouldn't lack self-confidence. It doesn't mean we always need to be polite, and it doesn't mean we need to underestimate ourselves in order to avoid the sin of the mind or the root of the sin of the mind, which is pride. And we can get a good idea of what it's like not to sin or to sin a certain way by looking at examples as models. There are positive models and negative models or exemplars. So here's some examples from movies. Got examples of arrogance, envy, greed, and vanity, loyalty, honor, and uh, I'm going to hear about this slide later, I know. She never messes up. In all seven books, Hermione Granger never makes a mistake. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. All right, let's take a uh, first example of Jesus. Here's what uh, Paul says about Jesus. Do nothing out of selfishness or conceit, rather in humility. Value others above yourselves, not only looking to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your mindset should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. All right, so Jesus had the humble mindset, who, being God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant. He even washed people's feet being made in human likeness. All right, so he knew that he was God, but he didn't pay attention to it. He told people he was God because it was important, but he didn't use it. Instead, he took the form of a servant. He didn't underestimate himself, didn't lack confidence, but nevertheless, he was willing to do things for others. For what sake? For the purpose of what? To become obedient to death, even death on a cross. For the salvation of souls. For the sake of a purpose, he took a status and he was willing to act as if he didn't have that status for the sake of the purpose. Let's look at another example, John the Baptist. So John the Baptist was super famous. People were coming to him to be baptized. Word was spreading around. He was a big deal. And then Jesus came on the scene and started baptizing people on the other side of the Jordan. And John the Baptist's disciples came to him and said, Hey, uh, Rabbi, you know that man? And didn't call him my name, right? They're not saying, you know, that guy over there who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you talked about, not saying him by name, that guy. Look, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. You're being eclipsed by this other guy. You're losing your fame. 
To this, John replied, a person can receive only what's given to them from heaven. You yourselves can testify. You remember what I said? I'm not the Messiah. I'm sent ahead of him. I'm not the big deal. He's the big deal. The bride, which is the prize or the glory here, belongs to the bridegroom, Jesus. The friend, that's me, who attends to the bridegroom, Jesus, waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. It's now complete. I must, uh, he must become greater. I must become less. One side of, uh, sign of whether you're humble is whether you're willing to give up your status. And, G- and John was willing to do that from the beginning. And when it happened, he gave it up. He was completely willing to do that. Number three is Paul. So here Paul, after he talks about Jesus being humble in Philippians 2, gives himself as an example in Philippians 3. Here's what he says. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. So he's giving reasons for confidence in the flesh. Circumcised on the eighth day. And uh, yeah, it seems like a little too TMI. You know, he's pretty proud of that surgery. I would have been like, maybe you should leave that one out, Paul. You got some other good reasons there. But mentions that one first. Of the people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, who he's born into it. In regard to the law of Pharisee, got the status. As for zeal, got the actions, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, flawless, flawless, living by the letter of the law. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I've got the status I'm willing to let go. I'm willing to subordinate it and act as if I don't, is what Paul's saying. Scripture's exemplars of humility, Jesus, John the Baptist, and Paul, set aside their status for the sake of a purpose, which is the ushering into the kingdom of God. Paul considers a loss for the sake of Christ. John considers it a loss for the um, ushering into the Messiah. Jesus considers it a loss for the salvation of souls. And Paul says, all of us then, right after he gives himself as an example, all of us then who are mature, teleon, complete, all of us who are experts at aiming at the right purpose, should take such a view of things. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, just as you have us. Paul and Jesus, as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. We are examples of health with respect to the mind. All right. So now uh, we know what a sin of the mind is, misalignment between our purposes and God's. We have some examples of sins of the mind. We've gotten to the root, which is pride. And we know what it looks like not to sin in that way. A person who's not prideful is willing to subordinate their status or who they are, their righteousness for the sake of a purpose. Now we can develop a treatment plan. So in case this isn't happening, what should you do? How do we root out the pride that's within us? I give a four-step plan. First is to watch out for signs or symptoms. And so I'm going to use two examples of signs or symptoms that Paul himself gives in chapter three, just as he got done saying, we who are mature should should take such a view of things. He gives two examples of prideful attitudes. The first is complaining. If a person complains because so-and-so is so annoying, one thing you might ask is, so? Yeah, this, this thing is irritating. So what? 
Well, I, I don't want them to act that way. Okay, so you didn't get what you want. So? So they should act differently. Well, why think that? Because I don't deserve that. Well, there it is. As soon as a person starts to complain because they think that they deserve to have other people treat them in certain ways, certain non-annoying ways, that's an arrogant mindset. It's to infer illicit entitlement, desert. I deserve this from one's own status or superiority. Um, it could be snobbish. A person who complains about someone can hold the other person in contempt, thinking that because they do this, they have a lesser status. A person who says, so-and-so has been saying these things, and I'm concerned for them that they'll be abrasive to their community and not be able to be you know, an, an effective worker with other people, that's not a complaint. That's productive. The difference between a complaint and a productive comment is about the purpose. And so if the purpose is that someone is mad because they see not only saying something that something irritates them, but is mad about it because they think someone is slighting me or someone is doing something unjust because I deserve it, that's the difference between a complaint and a productive comment. Paul gives another example of quarreling. Quarreling is not just having a discussion or debate or an argument. You can have a discussion or debate or an argument with someone in order to come to the truth, where you give both sides, you throw the arguments for and against back and forth in order to come to the truth. A quarrel is what happens when people see themselves as trying to win. They're trying to one-up the other person in the argument. They're trying to get the other person to come to their side instead of just presenting a case for the sake of the truth. And to do this is to have a domination kind of mindset. They're viewing the interaction that should be for the sake of the truth as an opportunity to win, and they want to see themselves as the winner. So one treatment plan is to continue to be on the lookout for signs and symptoms. Sounds like something a physician would say. Number two, and remember pride has two conditions. First is the worthiness condition where you recognize something worthwhile, and the second is the possession condition. This worthwhile thing is in some sense mine. Well, uh, the first one addresses the possession condition. If you think that everything that you are, everything that you have, everything you've been given is on loan from God, it's, it's not something that you acquired by your own efforts, but by God's providence, God gave you this, and God can take it away at any time. It's not even a gift from God that's yours to keep. It's something that God has given you for a little while that you can have for a little while. Then you don't think of it as yours. Everything that you are is owned by God for yours to use. And if you think like that, then the possession condition disappears. You no longer have pride in yourself or your own accomplishments. Instead, you thank God for God's generous gifts that he's given to you. And the next one addresses the worthiness condition. Um, it's really tempting in our culture to track and measure and quantify everything. Our steps, our progress, our percentile rank in our class. It's easy to, to add that, to, to quantify that. But one piece of advice in order not to try to assess how worthy you are in order to remove the worthiness condition is not to track it. Don't think about how how righteous you are compared to other people. 
don't put yourself on a percentile rank thinking I'm 70% or 30% righteous. Don't, don't do that. Instead, have the mindset where you're constantly trying to improve. I included a passage here that I'm not going to read for time's sake, but Paul says he's not judging himself. He's just constantly on a, on a path to try to improve. And then last, and this is a general comment, we should be doing this thing that Aristotle taught us, the teleological model, where everything that we do, we think about the purpose for which we're doing it. Because we already act for a purpose anyway, we might as well be reflecting on it. And we should be acting in order to subordinate everything that we're doing to the purposes of God, to the salvation of souls and the ushering into the kingdom. We should avoid thinking about what we deserve or what we're owed. It's easy to do that sort of thing, and that moves the focus on ourselves. And it's important to relax. But the relaxation should be for the purposes of getting back to work for the kingdom. The idea is to subordinate everything that we're doing to the purposes of the kingdom. We're not put in here on the world to exist for our own comfort, to get our own way, but we're put here to serve, to be ambassadors for Christ. So here's our four-step treatment plan. Watch out for signs and symptoms. Number two, realize that everything that we are is on loan from God, and that will help to, to temper that possession condition. Number three, to not think about how great or how mature we are. And number four is to subordinate everything to the purposes of God. Okay, to summarize, we've discussed what a sin of the mind is. Uh, it's a misalignment between our purposes and God. We should be actively aiming to serve God with our purposes for our lives. We've given some examples of what not doing that is, of turning the attention from God's purposes to ourselves. And the root of that is pride, where pride is recognizing something as worthy and possessing and an, it's mine as a possession. And instead, we should imitate Jesus and John the Baptist and Paul in having a humble kind of mindset. In order to do that, we can go through the four-step treatment plan, which is to continually watch out for signs and symptoms. The sin can creep in even unnoticed until people find themselves acting in a way that reveals they have the underlying cause. To not keep track of how worthy we are, to realize that everything is on loan from God, and to subordinate everything to the purposes of the kingdom. Okay, I'm going to close. That's it. I'm going to close with prayer, uh, with a benediction that Paul gives in Ephesians 3. Now to the God who's able to do immeasurably more than all that we can ask or imagine, according to his power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.